HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more at robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Lead me in the kitchen. What are we going to make? What do you crave? Hold our hearts, our history. Share it on. What's up, sweet listeners? Welcome to Queer the Table. I am your host, Nico Whistler. This week on the show, we're talking about one of my favorite things, uh, queers intentionally creating spaces to eat with one another. This is a long and crucial tradition that will trace from past to present to future. First up, I talked to Raina Catuso. She's a gastroobscura fellow at Atlas Obscura, which means she's on the food beat. Last year, Raina wrote an incredible, incredible piece called How Lesbian Potlucks Nourished the LGBTQ Movement. Um, I was obsessed with the piece when it first came out, and I learned so much in my conversation with Raina. Raina's sort of new to food writing, and I wanted to begin our conversation by asking why she chose to write about lesbian potlucks and how she went about reporting the story. I mean, I think because it's such a stereotype, I was like, well, this has to have come from somewhere. Um, And also just like wanted to sort of dig into that side of queer history. And it was a really good excuse to get to talk to activists from back in the day who are awesome. Um, When you're a journalist, you get to talk to cool people. So good. Um, (laughs) So I guess for folks who haven't read the piece, what did you find? Um, First of all, 
I sort of had a hunch, and everyone I talked to reaffirmed this, that the potluck, I mean, it's both a political form, but also one that is born of economic necessity, right? Because a lot of women starting, say, from the 40s and 50s are moving to cities, um, are finding each other. So the first sort of concrete lesbian food event or ritual Um, at least that I found in my research and that the people I talked to directed me toward was the Daughters of Bolitis's Gab and Java event. So you have all of these women coming together. You have all of these women sort of tentatively reaching out toward each other and beginning to make these formal spaces. And, like, you have to eat. Um, And the bars were less accessible to women. And women, also queer women or, or lesbian women, also had less money than their male counterparts. So they weren't going out. And so eating together at home and sharing what they had was kind of a a way of building community but b just like a way to eat different food yeah so gab and java was just like let's gather in someone's house and have coffee and snacks is that that's what i'm getting from the name yeah let's gather in someone's house and have coffee and snacks and um I didn't manage to talk to anyone who had been involved in the Daughters of Belitis. I talked to Marsha Gallo, who had written a history of them, and she had sort of done this, uh, I think, 20 years ago when a lot of those organizers were still around. And, um, oh, my God, those women were so brave. I was reading her book, and it was, like, completely secretly, completely, like, furtively. If you're outed, you'd feel like your entire life and career is over. And so they're meeting in people's houses also because a lot of them are really, really in the closet. Um, And the Gavin Java events were also like a really early consciousness raising thing. And so I guess, how did that evolve? Like from the 50s into the 60s and 70s? um, The 70s is where I think of like lesbian potluck kind of, it's what I think of as the lesbian potluck golden age. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you kind of figured out some of the stepping stones. Sometimes when we think of queer history or feminist history, we get into this trap of thinking of, like, waves, you know? So, like, the Daughters of Belaitis happened, and then the Radical Lesbians happened, and then Lesbian Separatism happened, da-da-da. And I think it's less episodic than that, and I think the collectivity of it, again, is both economic and ideological. Um, but by the time, I mean, the, the organizers I talked to from the late 60s, early 70s, By that time, I mean, first of all, a lot of lesbian women are rejecting conventional family structures, right? You're not going to be married. You're not going to live with your parents. You are maybe achieving some level of economic independence and uh, forming queer families. I think that was not necessarily as conscious or as sort of utopian in the in the Daughters of Belitis era, but when by the time you get to the late 60s, early 70s, these are really conscious political projects of living together and of sharing food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you also did kind of a, a research on the food itself. So I would love to hear more about what you found there in terms of what people were bringing. Yeah, one thing that's like so fascinating to me uh, when writing about food is just how culturally specific people's sort of ideas of food ideologically and politically are. And so a lot of the women I I was talking to were white lesbians, were coming from sort of middle-class backgrounds, and a lot of these women also were coming out of the anti-Vietnam War movement and coming out of student organizing spaces. And so vegetarianism became a really big thing. So you have a lot of 
lesbians who are choosing not to eat meat as a conscious rejection of both these sort of middle American steak and potatoes values, but also as a rejection of this sort of politics of slaughter, which is intense. And then these kinds of stereotypical lesbian foods that like nowadays are joked about, so like lentils, there were a lot of lentils, um, different kinds of salads. I remember having a couple of conversations with people I interviewed where they were like, oh, it was really exciting because we could try different kinds of salads, which sounds like a stereotype, but I'd be excited to try different kinds of salads. Um, a lot of hummus. But I think the flip side of that also came out where there was this, there's a stereotype still of like lesbian food as this really sort of health conscious, somewhat austere, somewhat serious, maybe overly politicized cuisine. And Bonnie Morris, uh, who's one of the people I interviewed who had really, really, really amazing stories to share about uh, music festivals and lesbian cruises and all of these spaces where food was this space for flirtation and even for a kind of decadence. Um, I'm so compelled by the potluck also as this space where women or femmes are reclaiming this act of domestic labor, right? So mm-hmm. cooking, care work, all of these things which are often used to oppress women or to sort of tie us to unpaid labor or to tie us to domestic situations where we're not being respected um, or, you know, we're sort of pressured to do domestic labor at the expense of our careers or activism or happiness. Um, And this sort of magical, magical act of reclaiming that for ourselves and for each other. And I do think that, like, especially right now politically at a time where there is a very heightened sense of of movements happening, of, of the stakes being very high as women and as queer people, spaces for joy and spaces for pleasure and spaces for sharing and caring for one another are so important. And um, the potluck is that, man. That, that is the lesbian potluck for me. Okay, now we're going to hear about, actually go to another space that is that right now in the present after the break you're coming with me to brooklyn for queer soup night this episode is brought to you by roberta's home of heritage radio network for 10 years roberta's was founded in bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. 
Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org gala. I've been trying to get to a queer soup night forever, missing them by a hair in three different cities. A few Sundays ago, though, I finally made it. My partner and I rolled up to Mimi's Diner, which is the dreamiest, but that's for another episode, actually, a few minutes before the event was supposed to start. The sidewalk was packed with queers. I didn't know anyone aside from my boo, and I was carrying this huge recording kit, so I felt a little bit awkward and anxious. But once we got inside, Mimi's was warm, Fleetwood Mac was playing at just the right volume, and folks were cheerily talking and introducing themselves in the line for soup. A few minutes after we started digging in, Queer Soup Night's founder, Liz Alpern, very charmingly stood up on the bar and got everyone's attention. Um, So over the time that we were off, one of the things that we did uh, was we surveyed the community. We started talking to people. We're like, what does everybody want from this party? We've sort of been doing, you know, whatever we've been doing for two and a half years. What what is the next stage? What are people looking for? What are you all actually thinking? Um, and what we found was that people really wanted more chances to connect with one another. So we're going to try something new. And thanks for being part of it. We are going to ask everybody, and don't do it until I say, because I know how these things go. <laughs> We're going to ask everybody to turn to somebody you don't know. Introduce yourself, your name, your pronouns, what brought you here tonight, and something that was a highlight of the summer. And then when I say switch, you're going to switch. So name, pronoun, highlight of the summer, and what brought you here tonight. was a little bit chaotic in the best way. The space was packed and we were all sort of wiggling, jostling for elbow room, but I met a really lovely bookseller named Sandia who was also at her first queer soup night. After a few minutes, Liz brought it back. Teach you all. We want to learn from everybody who knows things. So we uh, are really honored. To-
to be working with Drive Change uh, as our beneficiary all fall. And it is my pleasure to introduce Jordan and Kurt from Drive Change. We're going to say a couple words about the work that they do. So here things on the recording get a little bit tricky to hear, but Drive Change is an organization that works to train young people recently released from jails and prisons for jobs in the restaurant industry, and to train restaurants to be safe, equitable, and sustainable places of work. They have a really radical, ambitious vision for what the New York City restaurant scene could look like in a few years. So when Liz came to us at the Queer Soup Night, team came to us and said, we want to talk about food as a tool for social change. How do we do that together? As a queer person, I think queer people are positioned to do that. Truthfully, I go around and tell people I am a gender non-conforming person. I use they, them pronouns. My queerness, I believe in a future world that other people do not see. And I know that that's true of the queer community. So when we think about what world we want to build, what racial justice world we want to build, what gender justice world we want to build, it's this community that's going to do that. All of the money here tonight is donated back to Drive Change. So thank you so much for coming. After the speeches and the thank yous, I finished my soup and managed to catch up with Liz outside. My name is Liz Alpern. I am the creator of Queer Soup Night, and I'm a lover, and I'm a... <laughs> Queer Soup Night has grown tremendously in the past few years. I wanted to start by getting a sense of how it all started. So after the 2016 election, you might recall the great tragedy that we were all experiencing, still are. Um, but in that time period, there was a lot of uh, activation around how other people can get involved in activism. And I'm sad to say that I wasn't overly involved before then. I mean, I did social justice work, but not necessarily tied at all to my work in food. Um, and so I was looking for my way to get involved in um, in the resistance and I was a little bit confused because I would try this and I would try that and I was knocking on doors and making phone calls and donating but I just couldn't find my place and then I realized that if I utilize the skills that I have and tie that with uh, the social justice work that I want to do then I can really actually have an impact potentially so I um, I knew that I knew how to throw a party, I knew I knew how to cook for a lot of people, so decided to throw the first queer soup night in the coffee shop near my house, and um, the, the rest is really history. Yeah. What is different about queer soup night, both as like a radical resistance event and as a queer event? Like they feel, It feels different to me than any other organizing space that I'm in and any other queer space that I'm in. And I'm wondering, it's asking you to reveal the secret sauce, I guess. Well, I don't know. You got to be here to know the secret sauce and you got to be in it for a while. I don't know what the recipe is for the secret sauce either. I know a few things though. Uh, so one of the things is that we really at Queer Soup Night have this value of positivity and joy. And so when we are trying to make change and we are trying to fight, we are always coming at it from the angle of well, what does it look like for us to be together and loving each other and creating change from that space mentally. And that all sounds really lovely and I understand that, that there's people who might meet that with skepticism, but it actually is real. And I think it's paid off. So I think that we always came to everything we were doing, both queer life and activism life from this place of like, what does it look like to feel positive and happy together? How do we smile? How do we look each other in the eye? 
so it really sounds corny to say it out loud, but I, it, it, it actually is true. Um, and I think that the other piece is, with Queer Nightlife, it's very obvious what we're doing differently. We're, we're making the event way earlier in the evening. We're making alcohol not the center of the party. So this is a, a nightlife experience that does not center on drugs or alcohol, and it's happening earlier in the evening. So depending on if you have kids or what your age is, you can still participate. Um, we also have it in spaces that we find are conducive to connecting and having conversations. So we don't turn the music all the way up, right? We want you to talk and we want you to connect. That's also, instead of being DJ driven, we say it's chef driven. And I think that makes a difference too, because the chefs are so happy to be here. So we're, and all the people that are coming are so excited to taste what the chefs have to offer. And that just, just the value of that is it's just totally different than a regular party, you know? Um, but I think from the activism perspective, it's one of the biggest things that we wanted to do was find a way where people could feel collectively like they were making a difference. So the queer community is historically not a wealthy community. And yet, contributing financially to organizations is really important. So what does a space look like when each of us contributes 5 10 15 $20 and the impact of that is huge mm -hmm. and so some of it is about making activism accessible or making involvement accessible to people despite whatever your income level and that I do think makes a difference because collectively we have raised so much money and we is the queer community and what an amazing feeling that my $10 plus your $10 plus your $10 I mean we're like way over $60,000 right now since we started across the country and it's like that's average $12 donation right there. Yeah. That adds up. Yeah, that's so rad. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the model, like both in terms of within New York, like choosing chefs, figuring that out, who as chefs do you want to lift up, but also the national model, like queer soup night happens all over. I imagine yeah. you can't be at every event. No. So what is what does that look like? What are, I guess those are two models. But structurally? Yeah. Um, well, the thing about it is structurally we're always learning. So I, I just want to put in there that we went into this not knowing how big it would grow and what would happen. So a lot of this is stuff that we're always figuring out. But we, what we did was when, it, when the party started growing, we had to really explore what our values were and what was indispensable to a queer soup night. And we were able to name that. So what that means is this event has to be a celebration of culinary prowess. Um, one of our side, and I wouldn't even say side, but one of our goals is to democratize the culinary scene so that people who can only pay $10, which is very respectable, can have access to high-end food, right? Thank you, everybody. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Come back November 10th. Great. That's what I love. Um... Okay, so one of our values was it has to be driven by culinary skill and prowess. One of our values is that we don't sell tickets. So we want to make it so that people can just feel like they can show up. It's not a reservation. Show up. Everyone just show up. Um, so that's a value of ours. Our value is about keeping it local. So the organization that we support is always going to be native to this community we're in. Um, and if you're in Chicago, you're raising money for a Chicago organization. If you're in Portland, Oregon, you're raising money for Portland, Oregon organization. Um, and so we try and keep it in the community because we want those organizations to feel invested in us and we want the people who show up to see the work that's happening in the community.
How did you decide to let it expand to other cities or to have it expand to other cities? Um, well, our friend Larissa, who was involved with the party from the beginning, moved to Gainesville, Florida, and it sort of seemed like, hey, maybe you should start a queer soup night down there while you're there. And um, we had, I, I, I knew a bunch of awesome queer people in Gainesville, so she just tried it, and it was really successful. So from there, I sort of got the idea. Um, my friend Risa, who's a chef in Portland, she kept, you know, messaging me, oh, I wish I could be there, I wish I could be there. And I, I realized, well, you should do it. Right. And so those were the first two chapters, and they started with people that we essentially had invited to do it. Right. And from there, once pe once the world essentially saw that we were doing it other places, uh, we started hearing from people we didn't know. Yeah. And from then on, everybody was people we didn't know. Right. I think that's, I don't know, for me it often feels like, even being in Philly, like the queer world is so concentrated in New York, and so it was really yeah. sweet to see it spread to other cities of yeah. like, oh, you don't have to be in New York to have access. Like, this is not another thing that you need to be in New York to access. That's no, fun. a lot of our chapters are so successful. I mean, people are having such a good time in all these different cities. I've gotten to go to a few. I'm so excited at the end of the month. We have one at in Salt Lake City, our first one. But I'm, like, so excited because it's, like, Salt Lake is a super queer city, but it's also, like, you know, that's not necessarily the first place you'd think of right. for this. And I, I mean, the chefs who are starting it there have a food truck and they're pillars of the community, and I just couldn't be more excited. And we're also doing one in Western Mass on that same night. So those are two new places that are happening, and it's, like, they're great. Yeah. They're going to be great. Uh, so rad. Yeah. If you right now are wondering how to get a queer soup night going in your own city... Fear not. I asked for you. If you're in a city that doesn't have a queer soup night, mm -hmm. the number one thing you can do is just email us through our website and let us know a little bit about you. Um, we, it is very important to us that on the core team there is a culinary professional, so mm -hmm. if you're not a culinary professional, the first thing you should do is find somebody right. who wants to do this with you um, and then reach out to us. You can reach out to us before, but we're going to tell you to come back when you find a culinary professional to work with. I love teams of culinary folks and not I think that's ideal yeah. but you know you need both right. um, so the first thing is to get a team together and it's never it should never be one person it's you can't you can't be successful if you have one person so you want to have a chef and a somebody else right. um, and, or more people than that depending um, and then you'll you would reach out to us uh, we would set up a phone call with you whenever we are open and have the time right. um, and from this phone call if it feels like the right fit we'll send you our frequently asked questions document our toolkit document we'll ask you to read that through and just make sure that you get it essentially like I understand what this is all about it's very detailed it has everything you need to know um, and we'll help you set it up and be there for your first one and usually after your first one you're pretty solid but we approve the date of the first one just because sometimes people are really eager they want to do it too soon and we know that for your first one you got to have a two-month lead time at least right. you know totally see in a few months, you could be hosting a queer soup night in your city. I hope that you will be, and I hope that you'll invite me. Uh, as I was wrapping this up, I was having a lot of big feelings about the importance of these spaces where we come together over meals, especially as it's getting colder, especially as big holidays that, at least for me, are very fraught uh, start to get closer. Sitting at a table with other queer folks means something. I wasn't sure what else to say, actually, and then I remembered that Liz said it best just before the night wrapped up. 
On your way out, I would really ask and encourage you all to say goodbye, give a hug to your new friends that you just met. Uh, these are dark times. Queer Soup Night came out of dark times. Dark times have not gotten, they're still dark. It's so dark. It's And it's not going to not be dark in, in a year and a half. So what we think is like, we need community in this time more than ever. This is the time when making a connection with someone, maybe you'll see them at the next Soup Night, maybe you'll see them walking down the street. Um, this is about community and we're going to try and make an effort to create more opportunities for you to meet people, but it's also on you to, to, to smile and like break the barrier of like those clicky queer parties. So let's all be friends. Thank you all so much. Thank you. And that's our show. Queer the Table is produced by me, Nico Whistler. Natalie Uduella is the design genius behind our logo, and Denali Gillespie is the musical genius behind our theme song. They also inspired the name for the show. None of this would be possible without the support of the team at Heritage Radio Network celebrating 10 years of food radio. In fact, we are celebrating with a big fancy party in just a few weeks at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. It's going to be on Monday, November 11th. There will be food and drinks and a silent auction and the hosts of your favorite Food Focus podcast. It's going to be grand. You can snag a ticket at heritageradionetwork.org gala. Lastly, if you're liking Queer the Table, help other folks find the show. Tell your friends, tell your fam, tag us on our brand new Instagram, and please, please, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Till next time. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.